0: I mm. saw these things in Jesus holy me.: Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. With, the, with that prayer, I, I can't fail, for sure, although I might. No, I'm kidding. It is good to be here this morning with everybody. So awesome to have you here. Um, you know, we are, uh, we're in the book of Acts together, which, as you all know, I've said a million times, I'll probably say it a million times more. I'm really excited that we actually are in the book of Acts. It is such a magnificent book, that what the Lord has given us here, the history of His church, and how the history of His church is not ended at the end of the book of Acts in chapter 28, but how it continues on through us. Uh, and it will continue on through us until the day that Jesus comes back, or what's known as the end of the age. And we are grateful that we are Also, get to play a part in church history. Like, for instance, in our lifetimes, COVID and how it affected the church in the short term as well as the long term will be a part of church history. They will be teaching about that in seminaries to pastors and how to deal with the pandemic for a long, long time. And I'm telling you, we still, we still deal with the effects of that. Uh, pandemic of COVID even now churches are still not full to the capacity that they were before it happened but here we are this morning and we are coming to the end of chapter one in the chapter one in the book of Acts is a lot of prep work there's a lot of important prep work to get ready for the big event coming at the beginning of chapter two which we'll be talking about in a couple of weeks which is Pentecost or the coming of the promised Holy Spirit, the beginning of the church as theologians and church historians teach us. And so this is exciting. And even though when you read this passage, there doesn't seem to be a lot in it that's that exciting, the calling of Matthias, there really is. And we're going to see that this morning. So let's, let's pray as we get ready for the message that we have today, Heavenly Father, we just thank you, God, for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, God, that everything that you have written in your word is important. And we come before it, Lord, and we are in awe of what it is that you say to us. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to, to um, by the power of your Spirit, to understand your word, Lord, to learn it and to know you more. Lord, we pray that we would. We would know you more today than we did when we walked in. Lord, this is your word, and I pray that you would preach through me and reach us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we, uh, when we come through this now, we, we understand as Dennis taught us last week through the ascension, the ascension where Jesus was risen, and now we know that he sits at the right hand of his Father, and we await his return But by the time Jesus ascended into heaven, that was 40 days after his resurrection. And we still have 10 days to wait until Pentecost. Because as Dennis pointed out, Penta meaning 10, 5, 50. Sorry. It's been a long week. 50 means that the math part is what screws me up all the time. This is why I'm a pastor. And not an engineer. And so, <laughs> but 50 minus 40 is 10. That's what I was trying to get to. So we have 10 days left. We'll leave it at that because obviously I can't handle any more than that. But anyway, so here we are at this point of waiting, right? They're waiting. And what do we do? What do we see when they're waiting? Well, let's, let's read the passage and, and then we'll figure that out. And we'll dig into it together. Starting in verse twelve, which I know we've talked about a couple times, but we're going to start in twelve and then we're going to go through twenty six. So it's a little bit of reading here. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey from, a uh, Sabbath day's journey away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew Philip. ...and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James... ...all of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons were in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture has, had to be fulfilled... Which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels pushed out. Yummy. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language an Al-Qadamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men, so one of the men who have accompanied us during You have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. That's a a lot of verses that we're going to go through, but we'll be able to do this relatively quickly. So we see this small community of believers and how they're using their time as they were waiting. And I have some questions for you kids over here to try and answer. And I'll do my best to stay on my notes to make sure that you know the answers as we go forward. So the questions, and this is not just for the kids. This is actually for all of us to see what we see in the scriptures here. Now how, the question that I would have for you is the first one is this. How should we spend our time while we wait for the Lord in his return? How should we spend our time? The second one is, why do we pray and how do we pray? And the third one is, what is an apostle? Seems like a simple question. Four, why do we need a relationship with Jesus? All these questions get answered somewhere in this passage. And we're going to see that as we go through it. And uh, and we see this passage as we read it. We see that we see a God's community, this little community in comparison to the size of the church today is devoted to prayer. When we go back and we read verses 12-14, through let's read those and we'll dig into them. Now we know from Dennis, you know, that when he talked about this that they were coming from Jerusalem so there was not a a long distance from where Jesus ascended to where they are staying. Just a Sabbath day walk, maybe a couple miles, because they can only walk for so long before they were breaking the Sabbath. But let's read that and keep that in mind. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper rooms where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So the setting is becoming set for the disciples as they wait for the Holy Spirit. And now they're in Jerusalem in an upper room in a building together. So we have 10 more days to wait. So this upper room that they are in, let's keep in mind that this is most likely not the same upper room where they took communion with Jesus at the Last Supper. Most likely it's not the same one according to church historians and theologians, it is possible that it is the same room they spent time in and saw Jesus after his resurrection, but the Bible really doesn't say. So it's just as likely that it's another upper room and another place that they were hanging out in. But it is interesting, there is other interesting things that we see in verse 13 that I noticed, and if you're a student of scripture, you may have noticed this too, that Luke's order of naming the apostles is different here than it is in the gospel in Luke 6, 14 through 16. And you might think, well, you know, why dig into that? Well, you'll see in just a second. It's not a big issue, but I just want to point it out. In Acts 1, 13, we see the first five listed as Peter, John, James, Andrew, and Philip. And in Luke 6, 14 through 16, Luke's gospel is that he wrote before he wrote Acts, we see the first five listed as Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Philip. Again, I don't want to take and make too much of this because we don't want to take away from the point of the passage. But we also know that the Lord never does anything in Scripture without purpose. And everything matters. And so when we see these things and we notice this stuff, we should ask questions of Scripture. What does this mean? Well, it appears to me that the list in Luke's Gospels in the order in which the apostles were called. And the order in Acts is Luke's order of position where Peter, James, and John were part of Jesus' inner circle. They were there at the transfiguration, if you remember. And that's really all I wanted to point out to you, but there is a purpose in everything. And Luke, since he wrote both, the question then becomes why would he change the order? And I believe that is why he changed it. This, I just again wanted to point out that we need to ask the questions of Scripture and go beyond just the surface and dig down deeper to what it is that God really wants us to get about Him and what He is saying about Himself, but also what He says about us. Now the other question I noticed is that these they came together, the men came together, but then Luke also makes a point of pointing out that the women were involved in prayer with the men. Now, he could have just said the people, and we could have just assumed, but he pointed out the women in specific. And so that also made me question, okay, why would Luke make a point to point out the women were included? And I think there's two reasons. I think it's important to point out that Women were going to be a part of the early church as it spread throughout Israel and everywhere. All of God's people are a part of the Great Commission, whether you're male or female. These women had been with Jesus throughout his ministry on earth, and they were there when he was teaching and healing. And they were there for his crucifixion and his resurrection. And women have always been a part of Jesus' ministry, and that is not going to change. And as we looked at, when we looked at the doctrinal distinctives and we talked about the roles of men and women we saw how God created men and women equally before him in his image there is no difference we're complementary in what roles we have like women can have babies men cannot we've been through that I'm not going to go through that again but we know that this is true men are fathers that's So we're complementary, and even in the church, we have certain roles that we can play. And so we'll leave it at that. But God wanted to make sure once again, through Luke, that women were just as important as men at the beginning of the church. And I think it's important for believers, too, to remember that, that male and female, men and women, are called to come together in community in prayer to seek God's face and his will and his wisdom as a body of believers, united together as a church. We don't really, on our own, have any wisdom to lead unless it is given by the Lord himself. There is an intimacy in prayer that allows our hearts and minds to be open together and seek an audience with our Savior and Lord. There is strength in the unity of believers in a local body praying together to Jesus. Do you see that? The church is a sacred body of God's people to join in community to seek the Lord together. Yes, there is a call to pray individually, and certainly all of us should do that, but there is also the call to pray in community. Let's take a minute and think now what was going on in these apostles' minds, these people's minds, as they were going through this moment in time, as they were sitting there waiting. And how would it feel if we were there with them? How would we feel if it were us? If we could somehow grasp this a little bit maybe we would understand why prayer was the first thing that they went to instead of the last thing that they thought of. These people, at least some of them, if not most of them, had been with Jesus his entire three-year ministry. They had witnessed Jesus heal the blind and the deaf. They had seen him rebuke his enemies and call out the Pharisees. They watched Jesus touch a leper to heal him, the unclean. The ones who would run through town yelling, unclean, unclean, and cover their faces. Jesus touched him and healed him as he heals us, as the unclean sinners. They saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. They saw Jesus pray himself to his father, and in Gethsemane he prayed so fervently his sweat looked like blood. They saw him weep. They saw him arrested and tried unjustly. They saw him hanging on a cross, spilling his blood and dying. They witnessed his resurrected body, and they talked to him, and they touched him. Finally, they saw him ascend out of their sight into heaven. So emotionally, they had to be exhausted, don't you think? They had seen it all. All the things that we wish we would have witnessed, they were there. Spiritually, they had to be tired too, but built up knowing that they had just seen their Savior rise to heaven, and now there is a hope for his return and the coming promise that we'll see in a couple of weeks. And what did they do to pass the time? It was time for them to pray. And so they devoted themselves to pray. And the tense of this word devoted is in the present active, meaning that they were continually persevering in prayer. They didn't give up, even when they were tired, even when they didn't feel good, even when they weren't feeling it. How many of us say, well, I don't feel it today, so I'm not going to come to church. I'm not going to pray. I'm, I'm just going to watch some TV. They devoted themselves to prayer. Now, we devote ourselves to a lot of things too to exercise, some of us, some of us not so much, <laughs> to eat, to eat right in some ways, to read to watch our favorite TV shows, to our kids, to our jobs, and even to serve at the church. But, do we devote ourselves to praying regularly, if not daily? I have to tell you, okay, when I write this, I'm not just accusing you or calling all of you out. Um, My wife, Sherry, she can attest to this. I've been a little on the crabby side this week, dealing with a few things emotionally and spiritually in my own life. And part of it was because I hadn't been praying regularly. Now you would go, and this probably shocks you maybe. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't. I hope it doesn't. I am just a human being like the rest of you. But you would like to believe that your pastor would be praying all the time and probably the most praying person in the church. And you should be. I'm not going to argue that point. But... We, we also deal with our own human emotions and feelings of being of doubt and, and not that I was doubting anything but, but just getting down and depressed and, and not, you know, uh, just to be honest, you know, I used to have Matt here and he and I talked all the time and we would build each other up and one was down the other was up and vice versa. He's gone. I'm by myself. Sometimes sit in the office alone, it's tough. I'm not going to argue that. But it's not an excuse, okay? It's not right. And so, when I write this, it is hurting me on the inside too. It's it's very painful to realize that I too don't pray enough. I don't pray enough. Luke 11:9 through 13 says this. And I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? And if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Now, that's excluding the McDaniel family, who God seems to regularly give scorpions no matter what it is that they pray for, but <laughs> hopefully no more of those. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father, your Heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? When you read That verse, those verses there that Luke writes, there's a sense of why would we not pray more often. God's promise, and we know he's not a liar. He promises and he keeps his promises. And he promises that if you knock, he is there. And he will answer the door. He will hear your prayer. He will give you what's good for you. He is not a God who gives us bad things just to pick on us. He is a God who gives us the things that we need. All we have to do is come to him and ask. It is not that difficult. There is a sense in this of a persistence in knocking. It's not like going out to do door-to-door evangelism and you timidly knock on someone's door once and they don't answer and you breathe again and say thank God and you go to the next door right? And then you panic if someone actually comes to the door like oh no what do I have to say? No this is not what it is this is a persistent knocking on the door until Jesus answers and he said he will answer and he will so we knock until he does that's what prayer is. That's what it is. (laughs) It is a consistent, persistent knock on the door. Because he's always home. He will always answer. That is his promise. He doesn't lie. Luke 19.46 says, Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. And maybe you find yourself praying because you're Or you find yourself not praying because you're not sure how to pray. Now, some of you here, that's understandable because you're new to this. Or maybe you don't even know how to pray. But there are those of us who are seasoned Christians, who've been Christians for a long time, who know how to pray. And we should be praying, and we have no excuse. But for those of you who don't know how to pray, let me give you just one simple lesson on how to pray. One, well, two, really. So this, so I'm going to answer your first question here. Why is it that we pray? Because it is God's command for us to pray. G- Jesus Himself was a man of prayer, so we are to pray without ceasing. But how do we pray? Pray. How do we pray? And that's a simple thing. It's really not difficult to pray. It is our will that fights against us that makes it difficult. Here is a simple way. You need four fingers. If you can find four fingers on your hand, you can do this. It's called the Acts method of prayer. And since we're in the book of Acts, I thought this was appropriate. You might remember it that way. Acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Now I had an I, Intercession. And what that means is that when we, talk, when we come to the Lord in prayer and when we come to Him, we start out adoring Him and telling Him how great He is and for the things that He has done, for being our Creator and Lord and all of the things that God has done for us. And then we confess. All of us have sins daily, things that we need to confess. We need to get them out. And the, closest, the closer that we confess to when we sin and find freedom and forgiveness, the better off we are. And so the second thing that we do is confess and cleanse our sins out. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants us to be clean. That's why Jesus went to the cross. So confession is second. Third is thanksgiving. Again, like adoration, but to thank Him for everything that He's given us. To remind ourselves of what our God has given us and not dwell on what we don't have. We have air in our lungs. We have a brain that can think. We have a God who loves us. Most of us have a roof over our head. We have a job sometimes. We have income. We have things. We have so much. Even if we don't have a lot, we have something. And God has provided all of it for us. And if nothing else, we have hope. We have hope that there is a heaven upon which we will live, and we will be with Him forever. We have a God who went to the cross and saved us by dying for us, taking God's wrath so we don't have to. We have so much to be thankful for. And yet, I find myself sometimes dwelling on the negative. Why would I do such a thing? Because there's an enemy out there who wants us to dwell on the negative. He wants us to say, Are you really thankful? Don't you deserve more than what you have? I don't deserve a thing. That's the truth. None of us do. We deserve what God gives us, and he gives us life through his son. He gave us that. That's his grace. He found us worthy to give that to us. You and I bring nothing but our sin to the table. And if you want to follow another method of prayer, of course, there's always the Lord's prayer, and you can find that in Matthew 6, 7 through 14 if you're taking notes. Luke has a shorter version in Luke eleven, two through 4. But when you look at that, in a lot of ways, Jesus, Lord, his, the Lord's prayer as we know it, Jesus' model for prayer is similar to the Acts method of praying. And here's the action that I want us to get from this, the application for us here. It's because the Lord wants us to be a house of prayer. So do I. I want us to be a house of prayer that prays individually at home and as a church united here together. Now, I know it's early at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning, but we are here, except for... On occasion, today we, we're here at nine, but most of the time we're here at eight in the morning on Sundays praying together, those who can make it. I know not everybody can, but if you can make it, you are invited to come. And we pray for each other. We pray for the churches in the valley. We pray for our church. We pray for those who are hurting. Most of all, we pray to get ready for the morning worship. Now, we also have almost every Monday shepherds' meeting at my house, at Sherry and my house, at 6.30 p.m. And we pray. We have a list of prayers that we put together that we have gathered over the week. Some we continue to pray on for a long time until we see an answer. But we gather to pray. And there is plenty of room. If anybody here wants to be a part of that And come to our house at 6.30, let me know, and we will meet you at our home. We'll open it up, and we'll pray together as we do every Monday night. There are some Mondays where we don't, but most of them we do. We would love to have you. I would suggest, too, that maybe some of you grab a few of you and go grab some coffee somewhere, or go to the park when the weather's nice, and to pray together. To do nothing else but to pray first and then talk afterwards. Seek God's face. Because I'm just going to say this, that if we really and truly believe that God is who He says He is, and His promises are true and faithful and we believe in Him, we will pray. A sign of a transformed Christian is a Christian that prays to God. If you're not praying to God, then where is your faith? Again, I'm asking myself the same question. Where is it? Where do you put it? Do you really feel like you can go through this life alone and do the things that you need to do? No. Because it's Jesus is there. He's there interceding on our behalf and we come to the throne room and pray to him and we seek his face. There is power in the prayers. Power in prayer. Especially as transformed sinners united together as his church. If we really want to change this valley and turn it to him, we need to begin with prayer. Prayer. Committee meetings and outreach events don't matter unless they're bathed in prayer. Now, we'll see more of this as we go deeper into the book of Acts. But now we're going to come to this passage, the section of this passage, where it's a little curious as to why it's here. Why did Luke put this section where Peter describes Judas and his death in such gruesome detail? Well, there's a couple of reasons why. One is, first of all, the fulfillment of Scripture. Scripture needed to be fulfilled, and, and Peter pointed that out. And second is that God is the one who chooses whom he chooses. So let's read these verses again, verses 15 through 20. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, and the company of persons was in all about 120 And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that the field was called in their own language, Al-Qadamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, and this is actually written in Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-five: May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. <clears throat> and then the next one is found in Psalm 109, 8. Let another take his office. Now when we read this section, the first thing we notice is that it is Peter who stands up and he takes a leadership role. He is the one who is among the believers and proclaims something that must be done to replace Judas, the traitor. And this is the beginning of what we will see a lot in Acts. The transformation of Peter from a blue-collar fisherman to an esteemed leader in the early church movement. And what we see in this for us in this. What is there in us for this little section? Yes, we just keep in mind that there is only one Peter who is given a unique position in the kingdom of God handpicked by Jesus for this moment in time, for this purpose that Jesus had for him to lead this new movement of believers forward. But listen, let us not forget this about us, okay? Okay? God has also made you unique for this time in history. He has equipped you to perform the task that he has for you to advance his kingdom forward for his glory, just like Peter. Now, you cannot be an apostle. You cannot be an apostle, but you can be a mighty force for the kingdom. Just as Peter had the Holy Spirit transform him into a new person for the Lord, which we'll see in two weeks so are you. Will you be obedient as Peter was obedient and let the Spirit transform you into a force for God's kingdom? If you fully let him use you and give yourself to him, there is no telling what he will do through you, man or woman. I challenge you to let him. Stop saying I'm not this, I'm not that. What you are is a child of the King of kings and the Lord of lords who holds the universe together. In him all the fullness of God dwells in him and you, Christian, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Let him use you to the fullest extent he can and see what he can do through you. Let all of us do that. Now we see that this number is 120, and 120 is significant actually, because according to that time, you needed to have at least 120 to have a self governed community. So they were just big enough at that point. To be really a church community, if you will, governed by themselves. And so that's important because then the Romans couldn't bother them. And this is what Peter said in verse 16 that clues us in on why Luke felt compelled to place this account of Judas in this spot. He says in verse 16, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke Beforehand, by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, he was numbered among us and was allotted to share his share in the ministry. The scriptures had to be fulfilled, God's word, all of his promises had to be fulfilled because God, as we know, he's not a liar. Peter. The former fisherman who fished for fish is now a fisherman for men. He had learned from his time with Jesus how to search the scriptures, and he found two places he knew spoke about Judas. Now, if we were to go and read Psalm 69 and 109, and read the verses that Peter quotes, they would seem obscure. And we would have a difficult time making the connection between those verses in Judas when you read them in context. But that is the cool thing about the Spirit. The Spirit pulled that out for Peter so that he could see that these had to be fulfilled. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there, no one, let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Now, here's what we learned. We learn that God is the sole authority of his scriptures. He is supreme to all of us in his knowledge and in his depth, and all of his words are to be taken seriously, and all of his words will be fulfilled. We also learn this about him when we remind ourselves of Judas. And this will relate back when we get to the point where we uh, get to the choice of Matthias and why the Lord was the one who had to choose Judas' successor. Judas lived with the disciples for three years with Jesus. Judas looked and acted the part just as the other 11 did. And it appears through Scripture that the other 11 never really knew Judas was a traitor, a pretender, a poser. On the outside, everything looked great. He prayed, he went and evangelized, he was trusted to keep the finances with the group. He was a part of Jesus' apostleship he was there with them he looked to be just like all of them on the outside but on the inside he was a fake Jesus was the only one who knew what was going on on the inside of Judas and maybe that's why Peter explains that when he fell his insides burst open to be exposed I don't really know that to be 100% the reason why, but I do know that God doesn't put details in the Bible for no reason. Why would he put that in there? In other accounts, it talks about Judas hanging himself. Now, we shouldn't get hung up on that, pun intended, right? Just seeing if you're paying attention. But he could have fallen after he was hung and fell and his insides burst open. But there's a reason why he said that. But Jesus was the one who knew. Even at the Last Supper when Jesus announced he was going to be betrayed and all the others asked who would do this, Jesus told them exactly who it was. And they still didn't get it. Matthew 26, 23, Jesus replied when they asked who it would be, he said, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. But they still did not see that it was Judas. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew. And Jesus knows what goes on inside of us, too. Now, all of us, all of us can look the part on the outside. I don't know anybody's heart here. I'm around most of you, at least some of the time. And so I know a little bit about you, but I don't live with you. I don't live inside your head. Your spouse doesn't even do that. I'm just telling you that God knows everything about you. Even the deepest, darkest secrets that you don't want anybody to know. And they will be exposed. He says so. Everything will come to light. Just as it was for Judas, it will be for us. Psalm 139, 1-4, one You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. excuse me, you perceive my thoughts from afar, you discern my going out and my lying down, you are familiar with all my ways, before a word is on my tongue, you Lord know it completely the Lord in his magnificent omnipotence knows all about us, just as he did Judas even when everything looks perfect and good on the outside, and nothing is good, it's all rotten and ugly on the inside, he knows everything he knows it. In 1 Samuel 16, 7. He says, But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on, the, do not look on his appearance when so he's talking about Saul, King Saul, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. How is your heart, church? How is your heart? If Jesus were to look inside of you now, which he is, by the way, what would you see? Do you need cleansing? Do you need a lift? Are you holding something back that needs to be exposed? Is there something inside of you that you need to confess to him? He already knows. You're keeping nothing from him. We can Fool ourselves, we can fool everybody in the church, but we cannot and will not ever fool God. We can't hide anything from Him. Our behavior, our thoughts, and our sins are known to Him. Everything. And it's because He went to the cross and shed His blood on the cross that He died there and took His Father's wrath. So that we wouldn't have to for those deep, dark sins we don't want anybody to know about. And if we confess them and we repent and turn to him and look to him only for forgiveness and salvation, we will find it. That is called grace. Mercy was that Jesus took it upon himself. And that's why we need a relationship with Jesus. We need a relationship with Jesus so that we can have forgiveness of sin and we can go to heaven one day. And this, this is the best news ever. This is our blessed hope. This is the message all of us need to hear every day. We should never tire of hearing the gospel of Jesus. And now, as we turn to verses 21 through 22 we get the qualifications for Judas's replacement. And only two men were able to fulfill that, and that was Joseph and Matthias. And we'll see that it is God who chooses to replace Judas, just as it was Jesus who chose the original apostles, the original twelve, including Judas the betrayer. This is God's doing for his glory alone. And as we'll continue to see through Acts, God is always the hero. It's never Peter, it's never James, it's never John, it's never Paul. It's always the Lord. God's choosing a Matthias. Verses 21 through 26. <clears throat> Verses 21 and 22 in specific, let's read those. So when one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the, from the baptism of John Until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put two forward, Joseph, called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. So verse 21 states that the person who replaces Judas must have been with the other eleven during the time. He had to be around Jesus during the time of his ministry on earth. And verse 22, expands those details. The men had to be the man that was going to be chosen had to be with Jesus, in the eleven, from the time that Jesus was baptized until his ascension. He especially had to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And this is why the office of apostle is closed now, because there is no longer any direct witnesses to the resurrection of Christ of the resurrected Jesus. We will see in Acts 9 that Paul is the last one to be called an apostle. No longer will anyone fill the office of apostle. So what is an apostle? An apostle is someone whom Jesus alone chose, who was with him during his ministry on earth and was a witness to his death and resurrection and called by Jesus for that specific purpose. They were the first leaders tasked by Jesus to take the gospel into the world around them. So Peter and the other ten put forward two men, Joseph and Matthias. And what did they do in verse 24? I sense a theme. They prayed. They prayed. Because again, we don't hold the wisdom in order to make these decisions on our own. Because it is God alone who sees the inside of a person. We've already been through that. So they went to the Lord. They went to the Lord. There wasn't a search team. There wasn't a committee. They went to the Lord. It's not to say that search teams are bad because we need them now. But at this particular point in time, too, they are still waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. So the Holy Spirit is not in them at this point. So they go and they pray. And they pray. And what do they pray? They pray. They say this, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They prayed that God would choose. God would choose. And so we are to bathe our requests and seek wisdom in these instances. James says in James 1, 5-6, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. You're not steady. You need to have faith. Do you trust God when you come to him In prayer. Do you trust God in your life, in your actions? Do you trust Him that His promises are to be obeyed and He will fulfill them? This is what we are called to do. And so they prayed and asked God to show them. They had honest faith. Verse 26 says they cast lots to determine which name would come out first? And then that would be the one. Now, casting lots is mentioned in Scripture a lot of times in the Old and the New Testament. And it seems like it might be like a dice game, almost like you're playing Yahtzee with God. But that is not the case. In this case, it was God in His sovereignty was in control of what came out first. Now, we don't really know exactly what method they used. There's... Different ways of casting lots. And so, through the sake of time, I'm not going to go through them with you. But in the end, they cast lots. They put the names in. And it's similar in this case like flipping a coin. Sort of like having a mark on one side of the stone for one name and another mark for the other. I don't know if they flipped the stone, but it was similar to that. And Matthias was the one... That came up, and that was the one whom God has chosen. Now, here's what's a, another interesting fact: is that after Matthias was chosen, he is never mentioned again in the Bible. We know absolutely zero about this man. And why do you think that is? Why would God mention him once and never again? The method of that is is because Matthias is not the star of the story; the Lord is. It was the Lord who did the choosing. He's the one who chose Matthias. Matthias is just, he's just in the story. He's an important part of the story, and I'm sure he did a lot. But we don't know what he did because the Lord doesn't tell us. Because he wants us to know he is the one who chooses. And we can go to him and ask him requests and know he will answer. So as we wrap up this morning, what is our takeaway from this passage? And how does this apply to us. The first one is this. <clears throat> we see the need for us as a church to gather together in worshiping him in prayer. There is strength in the unified body of Christ coming together to see the Lord's will in our lives and in the lives of our church congregation. If we are to reach the world with Jesus and start here in the valley, we must begin On our knees. We must begin in prayer. To be honest, this is the difference between just coming to church and being the church. And there is a difference. Coming to church, oh, yeah, we can gather together and we can have fun, and this could be a lot shorter, but we need to learn to be the church. It's an active verb. It's not a passive, sit down and just soak it all in. Being the church. We'll see that as we get to the end of chapter 2 in Acts, what that really looks like. And the second is when we come to the Lord in prayer, we must always trust him that his word is true and that he never lies so that all of his promises are true. And I say that a lot, but I want us to understand that, that we must keep this in mind at all times. We must trust him. Third is that God in his omnipotence and his omniscience and his omnipresence is a comfort. If you're not in Christ, that should be very frightening to you. Or if you're dealing with a season where sin is overcoming you. But a God who is sovereign overall and is all-knowing and is always present everywhere should bring us comfort for those of us who call ourselves Christians. Fourth is the need to have a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ is imperative for any of this to make sense. We see that in God's choosing of those who served in the office of apostle, the need to have been a witness of Jesus in his ministry, and especially his crucifixion and his resurrection. There are requirements also for becoming a Christian. Romans 10.9 tells us that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. It's as simple and as difficult as that. All of us here today are sinners in need of Jesus to save us. We have all sinned against the Lord, and we have fallen short of his perfect standard. And the only way to be saved from your sin is to place your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection and then turn from your sin into the loving arms of our Lord. Only Jesus can save. I can't save you. You certainly can't save yourself. If you need Jesus, if you are not sure that you are saved, then come see me after service. But to take this home with you, understand that the Lord wants and commands to hear from you. As a Christian, you are obligated to pray to him. This is what we do. It's not what we talk about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, God, that we can open your word and whatever passage that we come to, we can find you and your wonderful truth. Lord God Almighty, we love you. And I pray, God, that we would become more prayerful in our lives. Individually as well as in the lives of our church body. Lord, we truly seek and want to get people in this valley saved. We want to we do our part. But Lord, we need to seek you for wisdom first, together, as a people. Lord, we love you. And we know you love us. But God, you've called us to be obedient to you. And you've called us to pray. You've called us to trust you. You've called us to take your word out and share it with others. Father God, we are grateful for you. And I pray, Lord, that if anyone here this morning doesn't know you, Lord, that they would come to me and and ask why and how can I know you as Lord and Savior? How can I find forgiveness of sin? Father, we thank you and just ask for your blessing upon this word. In Jesus' name, amen.